So that's Judges 17, uh, starting at verse 1. Now a man named Micah, from the hill country of Ephraim, said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you, and about which uh, I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol. And it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and some household gods, and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest. I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of of the Danites were seeking a place of their own where they might settle, because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five of of their leading men from Zorah and Eshtael to to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all the Danites, They told them, go explore the land. So they entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah where they spent the night. And we're now going to turn over the page and pick up again in verse 14. Then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their fellow Danites, do you know that one of these households has an ephod? some household gods, and an image overlaid with silver. Now you know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites armed for battle stood at the entrance of the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at the entrance of the gate. When the five men went into Micah's house and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They answered him, Be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? The priest was very pleased. He took the ephod, the household gods, and the idol and went along with the people. Putting their little children, their livestock, and the possessions in front of them, they turned away and left. When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. 
As they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? He replied, You took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask, what's the matter with you? The Danites answered, don't argue with us, or some of the men may get angry and attack you, and you and your family uh, will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way, and Micah, seeing they were too strong for him, turned round and went back home. Then they took what Micah had made and his priests and went to Laish against a people at peace and secure. They attacked them with the sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they had lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rehod. The Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. It's God's word. A second reading today is still in Judges. Uh, we're turning to chapter 19 and reading from verses 1 to 30. In those days... Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there for four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home And when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterwards, the woman's father said, Please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the woman's father said, Refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then when the man, with his concubine and his servant, got up to leave, his father-in-law, the woman's father, said, Now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning, you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went towards Jebus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at the city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites, We will go on to Gabeah. He added, come, let's try to reach Gabeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on and the sun set as they neared Gabeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gabeah, the inhabitants of the place where were Benjaminites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveller in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going and where did you come from? He answered, We are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night, 
We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You're welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need, only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the man would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, if we're not met, uh, my name's uh, Matt Fuller, welcome. <laughs> uh, uh, the end of the book of Judges, that's what we have tonight. Uh, Luke's Gospel next week, a little more cheerful. But... Um, uh, let me add my welcome to those who've uh, been up here already, uh, particularly if you're visiting for the first time tonight. It is uh, great to have you with us, and it'd uh, be lovely to think uh, you may be with us for many years to come. Who can tell? But uh, let me pray before we look at this together. Hey, great God and Father, we turn to a reading such as this, and it is, of course, bewildering, and it's brutal. And so we ask that you'd help us, help us understand it rightly, help us understand why it's recorded for us, what relevance it has for us today, how we live in the light of this truth. Father, help us, we ask, so that our trust is more firmly rooted in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. And that was the problem. Everyone did whatever they thought was right. So in simple terms, here, what you have in, um, uh, in this passage is, here is what life looks like if there's no God. People believe there's no God, and everyone does as they see fit. Now, praise God, we're not there. This is not our culture. 
And this is not something that is common in the West. Although, I guess even as that's being read, you think, well, hold on a minute. It wasn't 18 months ago, two years ago, the great scandal of gangs in the middle of the country, grooming young, white, Western girls by repeated raping so that they were used as prostitutes. It's not a million miles away, but it's not common. And we praise God for that, that this sort of story, particularly the second one that was read, is not common in the West. But that in many ways is because we live in a culture still built upon Christian ethics. And you look around the world where they've never had that foundation of biblical Christian ethics, and it isn't pretty. And you look at the communists, the atheist countries of the world, and you think, well, over the last hundred years, they have been the most brutal. It's just empirically the case. Most have died. And you look at the swathes of, uh, of the world where, forgive me, but Islam is dominant, and there is no ethical basis of Christianity underlying it. And, well, those are still the most brutal regimes. And a couple of years ago, we were very excited by the Arab Spring in the Middle East. But there was no democracies that followed after it because there's no Christian foundation. You just get new levels of brutality. Hasn't been brilliant in Iraq or Afghanistan since attempts to introduce democracy were there. Liberal democracy is not the salvation of the world. If there is no God as king revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is where cultures will drift or be. Oh, there's no God as king. Everyone does as they see fit, and it's miserable. And we're not there because of the Christian legacy in the West in this country, and you praise God for it. But this is where you end up after centuries and centuries of no king, no God. So here in this last section of uh, the book of Judges, chapters 17 to 21, two, two descriptions really, two narratives, we had it read in two chunks, two horrible descriptions of what happens when God is not king. And it is miserable. There is, in simple terms, religious chaos, and there's moral chaos. Just a quick step back then. Uh, this is our last look. Well, we spent two months or so in the book of Judges. Uh, at the beginning of the book, all is, at the beginning of the book, two introductions, if you remember all the way back uh, in June or wherever it was, two introductions to the beginning of the book. Chapters, um, uh, what, three to really 16, all the different judges, and then chapter 17 to 21, two conclusions. It's sort of how it works. Well, at the beginning of the book, all is encouraging. God's people have entered the promised land of Canaan, and they're there. It's a pretty immoral place, Canaan, but they're there to transform it. They're there to be different, distinctive, and, and permeate the area of Canaan. They're meant to tell people, model how good it is to live under the Lord, uh, the Lord God. But they don't. Rather than affecting Canaan, Canaan affects God's people. They're Canaanized. They're compromised. They become immoral. Uh, someone was telling me about their summer camp. Many of you would have been on uh, summer camps. And uh, James Kite, many would know, he's a children's worker here. He was saying he was on a summer camp. And um, he was there to improve, in one sense, run with the, it's not a perfect analogy, but he was there to improve the, the room group of boys 
that he was in. And uh, they were boysy boys, uh, but fairly young teenage boys, and five days in, no one had showered on an activity camp of teenage boys in this room. And it had a certain piquant fragrance to the room, it's fair to say, or in more colloquial language, they stank. Um, and now what James should have done is had an impact upon them. He should have made sure they were all clean, but he compromised. <laughs> and he became a fetid stick. No, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't. <laughs> Five days in, he marched them to the shower block and forced them to have showers. Uh, and they were, we're too old for this. Well, no, not if you smell, you're not. Uh, in you go. So he had a positive influence. Israel is meant to have a positive influence upon morally stinking Canaan. But they don't. They are compromised. God's people become just like the immoral world around them. And really, at the end of the book, then, these two conclusions, chapters 17 to 21, they, they take stock, really, and ask, how did it go wrong? As I say, two introductions to the book, then you get these two conclusions. They're not chronological. So it's not that these things happened after all the judges and after Samson. Because you've got, um, uh, it's somewhere in chapter, 13, uh, ch chapter 18, verse 30, you've got Moses' grandson. So actually, it's quite early on in Israel's history, these two stories. But they're put at the end of the book to say, this sort of stuff was happening, you know. This is what Israel in the land of Canaan looked like. It's not good. So it's a conclusion to say that this is why it all went wrong. And the answer is quite clear. We're told it four times. So chapter 17 and verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Chapter 18, verse 1, in those days Israel had no king. Chapter 19, verse 1, in those days Israel had no king. And then right at the end, chapter 21, and the last verse of the book. In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. They did have a king. God was their king. But the solution is going to be presented. Okay, you're not honoring God. You're not following him rightly as king. Well, perhaps a human king who rules as God over you, that, that will help. But the problem is they don't acknowledge the Lord. They don't follow God. There's no king over them. Everyone does what seems right to them. And it's chaos. So we'll look at it in these two ways. Religious chaos, moral chaos. And the point is this, you have to follow the king. First in verse, uh, chapters 17 and uh, 18, Micah, we get uh, religious chaos. Let me read again, uh, introduce chapter 17 and verse 1. Now, a man named Micah from the hill country in Ephraim said to his mother, look, the 1,100 shekels of silver, that's quite a lot of money, uh, that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me, I took it. Mom, I've been nicking from your purse, you know, and it's thousands of pounds. Then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. 
When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, oh, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I'll give it back to you. Well, you, want to, you read this and you groan from the off. Here's a, pam, here's a son who's just pampered by his mum. Useless parenting, no discipline. Mum, I've nicked a load of money from your purse, but, but I'm going to give it back to you. Oh, well done. I'm so pleased that you're giving it back to me. I'm going to give it to you uh, as long as you make some pagan idol. Oh, thanks, Mum. Uh, the whole thing's terrible um, from the word go. It's hopeless. Well done for admitting it, darling. Well, thanks, Mum. I'll tell you what I'm going to do, verse 5. I'm going to build a pagan, or let's pick it up, verse 4. I'm going to have a little pagan shrine to myself. So verse 4, after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver, gave it to the silversmith, used them to make an idol, and it was put in Micah's house. Now, this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Oh, brilliant. So I'm going to make myself a god and worship it, and uh, one of my sons... um, yeah, Joshua, you put down your cornflakes, you can be my priest. Uh, brilliant. I'm meant to go to, uh, to the central sanctuary, I'm meant to go to the tabernacle three times a year, I'm meant to uh, love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength, but brilliant, now I can just sit and watch telly. And um, whenever I need to do the religious thing, I just pop to the end of the, uh, the lounge, get, oh, there's my silver, this is very good, my silver. Uh, Oi, son, can you come and be priest? Yeah, all right, dad. And um, it's a self-made religion. It's nuts. Why would you worship something you've made yourself, ever? I'm not particularly good with my hands. I've made a shed in my garden. It's good. It keeps the rain off the punch bag, which my son, you know, it keeps some sports, bikes can store. It's good. I don't worship it. It's useful, but I don't worship my shed. Why would you worship something you've made? Part of it's just very convenient for Micah. That's part of the appeal, I guess. Now, Micah's religion, it is very silly. He gets a little bit of a bonus. He gets a Levite, one of the sort of priestly tribe come along. And um, so verse 7, a young Levite from Bethlehem uh, pops along. Verse 9, Micah says, oh, where are you from? Oh, I'm a Levite. Brilliant. He's like a legit priest. I'll make you my priest. Great. It's all on my terms. It's all on Micah's terms, his religion. I just want something that fits around me. I don't even need to leave my house now. I'd be a Christian. I'd just sing a song and, and listen to a sermon on the internet. But it's even more convenient than that for Micah. It's just self-made religion that fits around his life. Hopeless. Well, there's a lot you could say about it, but let me just observe two things. Because in two ways, I think this is remarkably common. Even in 21st century London. Why? Well, it's a man-made religion and it's useless. So it's man-made. Micah makes uh, a little idol out of silver, gets someone to make it for him, and he worships it. And that's what we do. I was quite struck, uh, I've been reading David Zahl's book, Seculosity. It sort of collapses two words, secular, religiosity, seculosity, anyway. Um, But uh, I came across this actually just because of a book review in The Guardian, and uh, this I thought was very striking. I'm going to read you a little bit of it. Uh, Oliver Berkman was reviewing this book. David Zahl is a Christian, actually. But he's reviewing this book, Seculosity, and uh, he really gets it. Um, There we go, Oliver Berkman. 
heart. I realize that everyone these days treats something or other as religion. The hunger or for a feeling of enoughness or more archaically righteousness. The sense that your existence has been validated is just now. We seek it elsewhere in work, politics, technology, romance. Deep down, we're using these things to achieve salvation. Oh, that's fascinating. There's a secular writer giving a pretty good biblical description of idolatry. See, that's what we do, isn't it? We all do it. We all worship something. We all think we, we need to give our lives meaning. We need to prove ourselves. So we worship something. It could be our parenting. We want to produce the perfect kids or our career. We, we all do it. But even the secular writers are quite capable of observing that. And we create it because, well, we think it works for us. It's convenient for us. So man-made religion, that's very common. But the modern man-made religions or idols, they're useless. Just like Micah's God was useless. So you get that in chapter 18. Let me read a bit more. Right? Chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. Uh, in those days, Israel had no king. You're getting the point. Things go wrong when there's no king ruling over the people. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites were seeking a place of their own where they might settle. They had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five of their leading men from Zorah to spy out the land and explore it. Okay, so here's a group of warriors on their horsebacks, and they're looking to steal land. We want some land of our own, okay? That's what's going on. So on their travels, they come across Micah and Micah's house. And uh, Micah says, oh, you can come and stay with me. And then they pop back, and they nick everything he's got. So uh, pick it up, verse 18 of chapter 18. They've got a bit of a gang of soldiers with them. But now the five men went into Micah's house and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods. The priest said to them, well, what are you doing? And they answered him, be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? Verse 20, the priest was very pleased. Uh, so he took the ephod, the household gods, and the idol and went along with the people. It's a tangent, just this priest. It's just hopeless religion again. How much is, essentially, how much is Micah paying you? You're just like priest to one bloke. You can stand up in front of like, 100 people. Um, oh, excellent. That's like a pay rise. And um, he's just in it for the money, this priest. Hopeless. It's all terrible. But the main point you get is... Um, well, this little dialogue between these Danites who've stolen all of Micah's stuff and Micah. And I think it's meant to be deeply mocking, verse 22. When they'd gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together. So Micah says, oi, neighbors, my stuff's been nicked. This is like a neighborhood watch scheme. Um, quick, quick, my, my possessions have been stolen. Oh, okay, we'll come and help you, Micah. So they uh, overtake the Danites Verse 23, as they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, what is the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? And he replied, this is so pathetic. Verse 24, he replied, you, 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 took, you, you took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How could you ask what's the matter with you? The, the God I made and my priest, you took them. Why do you want them, Micah? Your God, who can't protect himself, can't stop himself being stolen. 
your priest who's so loyal to you, we offer him a pay rise, and he says, oh, lovely, and runs away from you. Michael, what, do you, what are they doing for you? Why do you want them, Micah? He's a fool. Verse 25, the Danites answered, shut up or we'll beat you up. Don't argue with us or some of the men may get angry and attack you and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went away and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned round and went back home and neighborhood watch wasn't very good. Hopeless. What good is your God, Micah? Oliver Berkman can see this. Again, commenting. That uh, same article, it continued. Our modern desire to find meaning in something else. Seculosity, it doesn't work. We lack the capacity to work, parent, or romance our way to perfection. Try to do so, and you'll only end up struggling to exert ever more control over your life. It doesn't work. All these modern things that we worship, they can't deliver what we want, can they? Hmm. This Christian bloke, David Zahl, who's written a book, these Christians, they might be onto something, you know? The modern idols, they're powerless to give you what you want. Enoughness, meaning. Oh, I guess at the end of the day, the most significant thing is that they're powerless to guarantee your eternity. I went and saw my mother this week. She was her birthday on Wednesday, and uh, 76. She's uh, had cancer uh, for a number of years. Three years ago, was given six months to live. Still goes, still rumbling on. Uh, but it's riddled with cancer now, and it's painful. Bones, lungs, everywhere. Painful now. Still lives on her own. Dad died a number of years ago. She was on good form on Wednesday for her birthday. Birthdays are a bit sad, these, these stage of life. And, Mum, how, how are you, really? Well, yeah, it's painful most days. I guess I just trust that God will give me what I need for each day. And then he'll take me home. And that... That's power. That gives you what you need. And the secular gods and the idols do not. Religious chaos. That's the first conclusion that the, uh, the writer gives us, chapter 17, 18. And basically says, isn't it silly? So silly. So silly what Micah was like and lots of people were like, you've taken my gods, the gods that can't protect themselves or do anything. Useless. Well, if that stresses how useless the religious chaos was, the second conclusion is, of course, more miserable. The moral chaos of chapters 19 to 21. And this is awful. Chapter 19, verse 1, in those days Israel had no king. Now a Levite, so he's meant to be a priest, he's meant to be uh, uh, the religious man in, in Israel. A Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Why doesn't he marry the woman? I mean, a concubine, it's not a mistress, it's better than that, there's some commitment, but he doesn't marry her. Horrible. 
He took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. He presumably liked the sex, but wasn't willing to commit. Very modern man in that sense. But she was unfaithful to him, ironically. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she'd been there for four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. Pride, I don't know. But he goes. Then we get this strange little interlude, verses 4 to 10, really. Uh, her father is a very generous host. Oh, it's time to go. No, have another meal. No, it's time to go. No, have another drink. Stay the night. You've drunk too much to ride your donkey now. The police will pull you over. And um, this sort of goes on clearly for several days. I think the point of that is, look, not everyone was wicked in Israel. There were some very nice and generous people. Uh, you know, this father-in-law, he's being really kind to this guy who's mistreated his, wife, his daughter pretty badly at this stage even. I think that's the point of it. Not everyone was awful. This guy was a good guy. But eventually, of course, it's time to go. And uh, the Levite leaves with his concubine. They don't want to stay the night in this pagan town, the Jebusites, okay, so Jebus, not Israelites, not God's people, so let's not go there, because they're not nice people, they're not God's people. Let's go in instead to this other town, let's go to Gibeah, which is God's people, but they're terrible. Let's pick it up where we... Um, Verse 14, they went on the sunset as they neared Gibeah and Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square. Uh, no one took them in for the night. Eventually, this old guy does. There's a bit of dialogue. Verse 20, the old man says, you're welcome at my house. Let me supply whatever you need. And he don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. And after they washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. So that's all good. Oh, verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter, and his concubine, I'll bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's... Wow. So the old man, he's the good guy, yeah? He's, he's contrasted with the wicked people of the city. He, he offers hospitality. But even this good guy says, well, don't rape my guests, but rape his concubine and my daughter. And he's the good guy. He just treats these women as objects. Well, it's despicable. The men say no. Verse 25, the men wouldn't listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn they let her go. 
At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning, and that's that verse 27 is kind of the one that above all this sort of kills you on top of everything else. When she's, he pushes her outside and she's raped by this group all night long, what is he doing? He's asleep. He's not even looking out the window. I mean, the level of callousness of this man is exceptional. Verse 27, he gets up in the morning. He's slept. I mean, that is just the levels of selfishness, of, of indifferent. I mean, it's appalling. Verse 27, when a master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way. Oh, he hasn't even gone to get her. There lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there's no answer, she's dead. No love, no remorse, no compassion, no guilt. The man put her on his donkey and sent her, set out for home. Verse 28, when he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all, all the areas of Israel. So he's angry, but he doesn't care about her. He's angry because his property's been abused. No love, no compassion, no tears, no mourning, nothing. Well, he sends these 12 parts into all areas of Israel. Verse 30, everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done. Not since the Israelites came up out of Egypt. What's never been seen or done? Well, presumably the chopping up of the woman and the parts sent. I mean, there's been some pretty terrible treatment of women earlier in the book of Judges. Well, we must do something, so speak up, and well, we haven't had it read, but what you get in chapters 20 and 21 is civil war in Israel, and 65,000 people die in civil war as the Israelites fight one another. And you get to the end and say, why do we read that? Well, the writer has told this story to deliberately echo an earlier account. And some of you may have picked it up. It's an echo of what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. In the Old Testament, and indeed into the New Testament, when Jesus mentions Sodom and Gomorrah, they're held up as the epitome of wickedness. There is nothing more depraved than Sodom and Gomorrah. It is Bible shorthand for the most wicked people there are. You read about it in Genesis 19. Lot, two men, arrive, uh, two men arrive at Lot's door. He takes them in. We're told the wicked men surround Lot's house and pound on the door. The language is identical to that in Judges and say, bring them out that we may rape them. And Lot says, don't do that. I'll send you out my two daughters. Rape them instead. It's just an echo of what happened there. In fact, they don't get sent out. Lot doesn't even, in the end, send them out. Um, but it, this story echoes 
what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the writer is saying, do you realize how bad things had got in Israel? God's people were behaving as wickedly as the most wicked people that exist in the Bible. That's how bad things had got. Here is what happens when you do not worship God as your king and everyone does as they see what is fit. Not immediately. You don't give up on God as a culture and the next day it's like this. But here eventually is what happens. When you reject God as king, you can sink as low as Sodom and Gomorrah. And everyone does as they see fit. Now, what do we do with this? We are not that bad. I mean, we, the church, are not that bad. We, United Kingdom, Western democracies, are clearly not that bad. But let me take one example. I know some over the summer have been reading uh, uh, Becca McLaughlin's book, Confronting Christianity. It's terrific. Um, I'm sure it's on the bookstall uh, still. I know some of you, it's a brilliant book. Uh, well, well, well worth reading. 12 questions that uh, get asked. And um, uh, one of the best questions, one of the best chapters, well, I think they're all good, but um, uh, on uh, morality and religion and morality and how do you derive morality. It's a compelling chapter. She starts off with um, something that was captured uh, from ISIS, it's a sort of question and answer book that sort of ISIS leaders gave to their um, soldiers. And uh, she quotes from it. Question. This is okay, this is a book that ISIS produced for its soldiers. Question. Is it permissible to have intercourse with a captured female who has not reached puberty? Answer, yes, it is permissible. Now, Becca says, well, everyone says, whoa, 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 what? I mean, that's wicked. We all agree that's wicked, don't we? That is wicked. Is it, can, oh, just if in case we're in any doubt, can we, can we rape someone who has a, a, a captured female who hasn't even reached puberty yet? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Go for it. That's the official party line of ISIS. You know, she's, of course, everyone in the West reading this book is going to say, that's terrible. You don't need to be a Christian. Anyone's going to say, that's terrible. She works through the chapter and, and, and numerous writers. She quotes one, Alex Rosenberg. He's a professor of philosophy in the US. She quotes from his book, An Atheist's Guide to Reality. Okay. He has a question and answer section in his book. Question, is abortion, euthanasia, suicide, paying taxes, or anything else you don't like forbidden, permissible, or obligatory? Answer. Anything goes. There are no objective right and wrongs. So, okay, ISIS says you must, you can rape a prepubescent girl if you've captured her. And in the atheist's guide to reality, what do you say about that? Well, there's no moral absolutes. Anything goes. Might is right. Wow. No, of course, Alex Rosenberg is going to say, I think that's despicable. I deplore it. I hate it. But I've got no objective grounds for saying it's wrong. 
because I don't, appeal, I don't think you can appeal to any higher truth. There's no lawgiver above us. So all I can say is, I don't like it. And the majority of people in the world don't like it. But are you going to just derive your ethics from the majority? 300 years ago, the majority of people in the world thought slavery was okay. You just want your ethics derived from the majority? Really? You don't want to say objectively there's any reason wrong? Wow. Because if there is no king, everyone does as they see fit. And if you've got enough strength, you can get away with it. Wow. Look, we're a long way from that. But if there is no divine king and everyone does as they see fit, well, eventually, how do you have a coherent society? And society has to fracture into its different tribes. And at the moment, they're innocuous tribes of Corbynism and Brexiteerism or whatever it may be. But society has to fracture into its tribes if there's no lawgiver, if there's no king. Everyone would do as they see fit. And as a legacy of Christian morality dribbles away, well, what people see fit will become more and more perverse. Diverse, certainly. Moral chaos. But look, Judges is written for believers. And I guess the main point of the story will be this. It'll be for Christian believers. And you need to hear this with a loud, clear, stark warning. Don't ignore your king. Don't drift away from your king and do as you see fit. There's no king in your life, you'll do as you see fit, and it'll be chaos, religious chaos, moral chaos. You'll ruin your relationship with him, with others, your capacity to speak truth, to influence others for good. Oh, it's the 1st of September, it's the sort of start of a new academic year. Some of you arriving in London for the first time, don't drift away from your king. Don't you do it. Follow him. Follow your king. By contrast with the idols, let me make just two things, then we're done. Follow your king. By contrast with the idols, Jesus Christ, he's not man-made. <laughs> uh, of course he's not. He's divine. He's the living God entering this world, walking around this world. He's the eternal God. Of course, unlike Micah's idol, he is inconvenient, I'm afraid. I mean, he's wonderful, but he won't fit into your life. If you're a Christian, you know, he says, well, if you would follow after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Well, that's inconvenient at times. It's easier to allow yourself to be canonized, to blur, to become the, like the culture around you, much harder to say, no, I, I can't go with the flow morally there. I, I have to be a little distinctive in the office. I, I have to be a little distinctive in my attitude to money, in my drinking, in, in my lifestyle. I've I, I got to be different if I'm following Jesus. That's inconvenient. Although you'll be happier. It's always easier to become Canaanized, to become like those around you. Always easier. 
inconvenient following him, but he's not man-made. But of course, the most wonderful thing, in one sense, is unlike Micah's idol, he is powerful. Because when you're crying out in prayer, you don't want a lump of silver you've made yourself. You want to know that there's a God who listens and who loves you. And when you're bewildered by the circumstances of life, you don't want a garden shed. You don't want something you've made yourself. You want to know that there is a God who is in control in the bewilderment, who is working for your good in the confusion, who is real and loves you. In the end, when you're facing your death, you want to know that there's a God who will give you the strength you need every day and will take you home. You want a God who's real and who's powerful and won't conform to you. It's too big for that. Follow your king. Jesus Christ is reigning as the king of the universe. He's the powerful king. He'll deliver you from moral chaos. Follow your king. Love him. Cherish him. Don't drift from him. Follow him. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we thank you and we praise you for the many, many benefits there are growing up in this country with its wonderfully providential Christian legacy, which has formed so much the bedrock of our legal system, of our culture in many, many ways. And it's hard for us to think that we'd ever drift in the West, in the UK, to anything as wicked as this, although we do see it in the news from time to time. But Father, even though we find readings such as this shocking, miserable, horrible, thank you for the warning that if we ignore you, if we ignore the Lord Jesus Christ as King, this is personally, we can drift into moral religious chaos. And as a society, whatever everyone does as they see fit, that is a miserable place. Father, would we heed the warning would we personally heed the warning? Therefore, not drift, but cling to the Lord Jesus. Follow him. In his wonderful name we pray it. Amen.